Okay, so we are back in Psalm 69, and as you know, we covered the first 18 verses last Sunday, and our plan is to cover the next 18, the last 18 verses today. Before jumping into the passage, uh, you may have noticed when I read it that it has um, an interesting section in it. Verses 22 to 28 are called, uh, it's called an imprecatory psalm which is a fancy word. An imprecation is basically to pray down judgment on one's enemies. And uh, so we are gonna spend an extended amount of time with that in a moment, trying to understand how are we as New Testament Christians, how are we to understand these Old Testament uh, Psalms where David prays for judgment on his enemies? Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies and to pray for their for their good. And so I, I want to spend some extended time on that. But let's go ahead and start with the beginning. Uh, this sermon will have three points. Number one will be verses 19 to 21. Our first three verses, 19 to 21. Uh, the Lord knows. So 19 to 21, the Lord knows. Number two, verses 22 to 28, the Lord will judge his enemies. So 22 to 28, the Lord will judge his enemies. And point number three, verses 29 to 36, the Lord will save his people. So the Lord knows, the Lord will judge his enemies, the Lord will save his people. The Lord knows, the Lord will judge his enemies, the Lord will save his people. So we're going to pick back up here. And just a reminder to refresh us from last week, uh, this psalm, uh, is not just quoted in the New Testament, it's one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. And it's not just quoted in one or two places. Uh, there are maybe six or seven different lines that are quoted in the New Testament. So it's one of the most widely quoted uh, Psalms in the New Testament uh, that exists. And so it is really, I think, worth our time, especially to get to know Psalms that are referenced so often about Jesus and about the New Testament in the New Testament itself. So again, we are reminded of David, who, although he admits he's not perfect in verse 5, is really being persecuted for not his sins, but being persecuted for his zeal for the Lord. Verse 9, you may remember, zeal for God's house has consumed him. And we see that in Jesus, that verse reference to Jesus when he cleanses the temple. Also in verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, David's enemies really hate David's God, and the nearest they can get to mocking his God is by mocking David, his representative. And those words in Romans, we will look later, are applied to Jesus. He's mocked by everybody, the elites in society and the dregs of society, for his love for the Lord, and he's praying desperately for God's deliverance. And so I love these opening verses of today's passage. L look at verse 19. This is just tremendously comforting to all of us as believers. Verse 19, you, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. So you can see the point here is you know, the Lord knows. It's right there in that verse. The Lord knows our reproach, our shame, our dishonor, and our foes. Now, just, just let that uh, be a comfort to you right now. So, Every difficulty, every kind of difficulty that you as a believer walk through in your life, 
is known by your Lord. He knows all of it. He knows it perfectly. He actually knows what you're going through more fully than you know it. Uh, he knows omnisciently, entirely and perfectly, every trial that the believer walks through. This includes trials that come from enemies. This also includes trials of natural kind of sufferings, maybe through sickness or disease or any kind of thing. So the Lord knows, and I'm, I'm reminded of our time in Exodus, and you don't have to flip back here, but remember in Exodus 2, uh, as we hear about Israel groaning in their slavery, L listen to these words. <clears throat> this is, again, 400 plus years into their time in Egypt. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. Now, I love verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I just love that. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What comfort it is that we do not have a God who is careless, who doesn't pay attention, who falls asleep at the wheel, who, who, who doesn't know what's going on. God knows intimately your suffering your unique situation. You're not just a number on a list. Uh, you are a person known intimately by your maker and your heavenly father, and he loves you. And um, because of who he is, he is able to focus and know all about you. He knows your reproach, your shame, your dishonor, all your foes are known to him. But let's continue in Psalm 69. Look at verse 20. David says this of himself, how much more truly was it true of Jesus? Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. I looked for pity, but there was none, for comforters, but I found none. You know, during this whole uh, pandemic, there have been all these tragic stories of people in the hospital who are horribly ill. I'll just mention one. There's a seminary professor at Southern Seminary, and uh, I never had him as a professor, but I know of him. And his daughter, he had a, an adopted daughter who's now uh, grown, and uh, she's probably close to my age. And she got COVID-19, and she had serious it, uh, effects of that. She nearly died in the hospital. I was sort of keeping tabs on it through Twitter for a period of weeks. She was in there for weeks. And her parents were not allowed to actually go into her into her room in the hospital to comfort her. Uh, so they could only talk to her through, uh, through FaceTime. And uh, the, the one time they were able to come to the window of her room, but they were not able to actually go in. And she was on a breathing tube. She was largely sedated for much of this time. Uh, it, was just, it was just really a sad story. Many people were praying and by God's grace, she recovered fully. It looks like she, she's been released from the hospital. She's doing very well, it appears right now. But just picture her. She did have people who loved her. She did have parents who desperately wanted to comfort her and they were only able to get so close. And just imagine how much more difficult that is when you don't have a comforter right at your side in a moment of great need. Well, David, 
didn't just have comforters who were at arm's length outside of a window or talking to him through social media or through a cell phone. He did not have comforters anywhere near him. And how much more of Jesus himself, right? So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, his nearest disciples uh, fall asleep while he's praying. You could not stay awake with me for one hour. And they didn't know what to say. Uh, Peter, James, and John. Um, the very Peter who claimed he would die with Jesus that next day couldn't stay awake with Jesus for an hour. Um, so Jesus is alone. Uh, Jesus, uh, as this verse says, his comforters are not to be found. Uh, he is uh, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. As one from whom men hide their faces, he is despised and we did not esteem him. Uh, we considered him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. On the cross, he's mocked by Roman soldiers. Uh, he's mocked by Pilate and Herod. He's mocked by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And even his disciples, except for John, really, all flee uh, out of cowardice and out of self-preservation. And they, free, they flee away from him in Gethsemane. And Peter, who tries to follow, ends up denying him repeatedly within earshot of Jesus, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter in that moment. Jesus knows what it is like to be without comforters. Uh, he knows what it's like to be without pity and for his heart to be broken. Uh, some wonder if literally his heart was in that, in that state at the moment of his death. Look at verse 21, and it, it's hard to even think about David in verse 21. L look at 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Most commentators think David is speaking metaphorically here about his own sufferings. Uh, most people are doubtful that he's speaking literally, they, but maybe he is. Either way, this definitely was literally fulfilled in Jesus himself. Um, the, the word there for poison in the ESV is the word in the Greek translation, it's the word gall, which is the same exact word Matthew uses when it says they gave him gall uh, to drink in Matthew 27, 34, same word in Greek. And then for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. I believe all four gospels mention the sour wine. And uh, when Jesus said, I thirst on the cross to fulfill the scriptures, this is the verse that he's talking about. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Remember John 19, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst, and they gave him sour wine to drink. It is this verse that was on Jesus's mind and on his lips moments before his own death. So how much more of a value should we place upon this psalm since it was in the heart and mind of Jesus at the very moments leading up to his death in our place? This is something that occurred to me as I was studying this, this idea that God knows, the Lord knows. Verse 21, David is, is in some ways referring to his own suffering here, but these apply to Jesus. So think about it. Yeah, our, our Lord knows what we're going through because these verses are about him ultimately. The, the sour wine and the gall that he has given, the mockery, the Lord knows because the Lord has been there. This is about the Lord experiencing shame and suffering uh, in the place of sinners. So when the Lord says he knows our reproach, he knows shame, yeah, he does. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Lord knows what we are going through from experience. But let's move on to this challenging section, verses 22 to 28. The Lord will judge his enemies. The Lord will judge his enemies. And I'm just going to walk through it. These might seem to our ears today somewhat challenging verses. Uh, so let's just read through these and, and talk about them. Verse 22. David says of his enemies, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Now, do you see? David says, they gave me poison for food, sour wine to drink, so let them get what they deserve. When they are eating and drinking at their table, let it become a trap for them. Let, them, let, their, let their end correspond to what they have done to me. Verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Now, I'll just mention here, that verse 25 is quoted in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, and it is fulfilled in Judas Iscariot. Uh, when it says, let there can't be a desolation uh, and no one live in that property where he hung himself, this is the reference ultimately fulfilled in the, the final enemy to God's anointed king, Judas, and uh, this imprecation comes true in Judas's life. Verse 26. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. I mean, how much more of Jesus that as God struck him down, others mocked him in his suffering. Verse 27, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, I want you to hold your spot here and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9. And as you are turning there, I want to go through a list of items. And, and don't worry about trying to write these down. I will try to email these to you later this afternoon. It would be too much to try to write down. But I, I want to walk through eight points, and I've adapted some of these from the NIV Zondervan Study Bible Notes and other places as well. But eight, eight points here. Uh, that uh, I think are helpful to consider uh, in light of these difficult verses. Because I don't know about you, when you hear prayer for judgment on your enemy, you're probably thinking, I have written down here, Matthew 5, 43, uh, pray for your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Also in Luke 9, when, uh, if you remember the story in Luke 9, uh, the, the Samaritans do not receive Jesus, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? They're loving the imprecatory Psalms, and Jesus turned and rebuked James and John and said, uh, no, that's not what we're going to do. So how are we to understand how Psalms praying for judgment fit with the teachings of Jesus and the call to love our enemies? So here are eight things that we should think about. Number one, the Lord, uh, excuse me, David asks the Lord to bring this judgment. He is not taking matters into his own hands in this psalm. And that's, that's significant. David is asking for the Lord ultimately to bring justice 
he is not taking matters into his own hands. Number two, this is very important. David held a position that you and I will never hold. David was not just any person. David was the anointed one. He was the anointed king of Israel. Um, he was the king of God's people. He was a type of the Messiah. And so David is speaking from a unique vantage point. He is not speaking from personal, petty vindictiveness, okay? He's not speaking from a sinful, petty, selfish anger. Uh, he is speaking as the anointed king of God, and attacks on him are attacks on the God who anointed him, and therefore David is speaking as God's representative as the anointed king of Israel, which is not a position that you and I uh, hold. And this kind of, you can look at Psalm 2 for, for more on, on those kinds of ideas. Number three, David is also living in the old covenant era where we do not live currently. Now, I got to be careful. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament is not inspired and that the New Testament is. I am not saying that. The whole Bible is the inerrant word of God. It is infallible, including these Psalms. But th the point here is this. Um, in the Old Testament, there is oftentimes an emphasis on temporal judgments of God's enemies, oftentimes. And the New Testament still has that. You have Ananias and Sapphira. You have things like that. But the New Testament tends to, be, to emphasize more frequently eternal judgments. And so in the era in which we live, uh, we pray for our enemies' salvation. We do good to those who persecute us. But we know ultimately that in the end, those who reject Christ until the end will receive God's justice in eternity. And so, in a sense, uh, all these imprecations still come true in eternity for those who die without Jesus. Um, number four, the New Testament is not only unembarrassed by these words, but actually quotes from this section of imprecatory psalm in Psalm 69, quotes from it twice. I mentioned the one in Acts about Judas, and also there's one in Romans that we will look at in just a moment. Number five, these words of David are what, now this is very important. These words of judgment that David prays are what you and I richly deserve because of the way our sins have, have uh, dishonored God and dishonored Jesus. So when we look at this list of praying for judgment, we should see that we deserve our table to become a snare. Our name should be blotted out of the book of life. We should not have a place among the righteous because left to ourselves, not one of us is righteous. No one is good. No, not one. So we should be uh, seeing ourselves as justly deserving of God's judgment. Number six, the judgments mentioned in this psalm, as John Piper said, quote, are a reliable expression of what happens to the adversaries of God's anointed. The judgments of Psalm 69 are, quote, a reliable expression of what happens to the adversaries of God's anointed. And that is absolutely still true today, as much as it was uh, when David wrote. Number seven, it is common in the Old Testament uh, for a word of judgment or warning to be conditional on the repentance of the listener. Just to give two examples, you, you may already be thinking of one, which is uh, with Jonah and Nineveh. Remember, Jonah shows up at Nineveh and says, in 40 days, 
Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet, was that word of judgment uh, rescinded? Yes, because Nineveh as a whole repented and God relented of the disaster he had said he would pour out on them because of their repentance. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 says the same thing. Listen to these words, Jeremiah 18, 7. If at any time, God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So if David's enemies had repented and relented of what they had done, they would not have been judged for those sins. And a great example would be Saul of Tarsus. If there was ever a man who persecuted God's anointed one and his followers, it was Saul who actually persecuted them to prison and to death. And yet the Lord was still able to save Saul and use him in a great way. So uh, if repentance happens, then, then the judgment obviously would not come. But the eighth thing I want to look at is in Romans. So I just want to look at Romans, several parts here of Romans. Look with me. And th these verses are referring especially to Paul's Jewish kinsmen uh, who were not believers at the time. This is Romans 9, and look with me at verses 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. So first of all, Paul says, my heart breaks for my lost ethnic Jewish kinsmen who reject the, the gospel. And if I could trade my salvation for theirs, I would do it. Th those are astonishing words of love and compassion from Paul. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Same guy, Paul, talking about the same people. Look at Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul would trade his salvation for theirs if he could. He's never ceasing in his anguish for their lostness, and he prays constantly for God to save them. Look with me now at Romans 11. Paul is still talking about that, that, that ethnic Jewish people, and look what he says in verse 7 of Romans 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Verse 9, and David says, now he quotes our psalm, Psalm 69. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul has no problem applying the judgments of Psalm 69 to the Jewish people who are rejecting the Messiah, while at the same time having a broken heart for them, wishing he could trade his salvation for them, and praying relentlessly for their salvation. Those are not inconsistent in Paul's mind to hold all those together. So uh, as we think about lost people, um, we don't get rid of the, the imprecatory Psalms. 
but we, we model ourselves after Paul, who we should have a broken heart for all lost people. We should pray for their salvation constantly. And at the end of the day, those who reject the gospel and perish, we have to trust that the Lord's judgments are holy and just, and that it is right that God, at the end of the day, judge those who finally reject the message of Jesus. Turn with me to Romans 12, the next chapter, and look at how Paul uh, fleshes out some of these concepts. Verse 14 of Romans 12, Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now just focus with me on verse 19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here is the sort of counterintuitive advice here, the command of the Lord through Paul. If we believe that on the last day, God will judge his enemies, that allows us to never judge our enemies and seek vengeance ourselves. We continue to love others. We continue to turn the other cheek. We continue to pray for the good of those who persecute us, knowing that on the last day, God will right all wrongs. And so we do not have to do that ourselves. So perhaps ironically, believing in the final judgment of God frees us in the here and now to not seek vengeance ourselves. Now, let me just kind of say a little bit about this. One of the reasons why these Psalms maybe sound so strange to us is because, frankly, we have not been through what David had been through. Uh, we probably have not had people literally try to have us murdered or assassinated. We have not been around when people we love have been brutally killed and massacred as David would have experienced at points in his life. So, so often we, we have a hard time relating. But imagine that you've been through something absolutely horrific. Uh, if, if, if someone you know had been uh, horribly abused, if someone you know had actually been murdered, if horrific things had happened, the desire to seek personal vengeance would be extraordinarily strong and Paul says, no, the fact that God will right all wrongs in the end frees us to trust him with the judgment and to allow us to love even our worst enemies and, and to try to seek to turn them into our friends. An example, I, I just think of this because it's just recent. This past week, um, a man passed away, and I'm going to forget all the names here. I apologize. I don't have it written down. But if you remember the story of Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, and Stephen Nate Saint and all the Roger Uderi and all the all the people, when they went to seek out the Walrani and to try to win them to Christ, they the five men were brutally killed and speared to death on those beaches. For one week, no one knew what had happened for sure. They ended up finding the bodies in the river, having been horribly speared. And if you remember, Jim Elliott was killed, 
his wife, his young wife with a daughter, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, went uh, with another woman into that same tribe and preached the gospel to the very men who had speared and killed their husbands. Now, that is not just unusual. That is not humanly possible apart from belief in the gospel and the power of the gospel. So they won a large number of this tribe was one to Christ. And one of the men who was in his 20s at the time, this is back in the 19, I think it was early 60s or 50s. One of the men who speared Jim Elliott and the other men, he became a Christian. And he just died this week uh, around the age of 90. And he's lived the last 50 plus years of his life as a committed Christian and has actually become sort of like a stand-in grandfather of the children of, okay, I'll see if this makes sense. He's become a stand-in grandfather and the dad of those grandchildren he killed. And so because of the transformation of the gospel, he's become part of the family and he killed one of the members of that family years earlier. So it, it's this story that is absolutely almost impossible to believe. And uh, that is the power of the gospel. Now, how were Elizabeth Elliot and others able to forgive and love? They knew two things. Number one, they did everything they could to bring them to Christ. And if he's one to Christ, then God's judgment for their sin is poured out on Jesus. They don't have to seek revenge. Number two, if they refuse the gospel and die in sin, God will pour out the judgment for the murder of Jim Elliot and others. That's not something that they had to do uh, in the place, if that makes sense. So they were freed in order to love others, and the Lord worked a great work of salvation amongst uh, those people at that time. That's still a testimony today. Turn with me to Romans 15. Paul actually references Psalm 69 twice in Romans. Romans 15, look with me at, at verse 1. And this is particularly about Christians loving each other. The strong and the weak, brother. Romans 15, 1. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, Psalm 69, 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that wonderful testimony about the importance of the Old Testament is especially focusing on Psalm 69. And what is Paul's point here? Paul is saying, listen, if we are having a hard time loving our brothers in Christ because we might have different opinions on secondary issues, he says, well, look, we should not seek to please ourselves. We should seek to love others just like Jesus, who did not seek to please himself in heaven, but instead came to earth and experienced reproaches that were directed at God that fell on him, God's son. And we should do likewise. We should seek to endure difficulty as an act of love for our neighbor and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, turn with me back to Psalm 69. And here is the last section, verses 29 to 36. So the first part was the Lord knows, then the Lord will judge his enemies, and now the Lord will save his people. The Lord will save his people. Verse 29, 
but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek the Lord, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. I can't help thinking of John the Baptist there while he's in prison and Jesus' compassion to him in his doubt and struggle while in prison right before John's death. David says, listen, Lord, deliver me and then let my song of praise magnify you. Let my thanksgiving magnify you. So when the Lord reaches down and saves his people, our response, and this is why we sing together, our response is to magnify God with thanksgiving. We say, the Lord is so gracious that he saved a wretch like me. The Lord is so good and compassionate that he rescued my life from the path I was on leading towards darkness. The Lord has set me on a new path leading to light and life. The Lord has heard me and rescued me. Now, finally, verses 34 to 36, look really into the future. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell uh, in it. I think here of Hebrews 12. Uh, verse 22, um, where the, the writer there says, let me say the words correctly. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you have come not to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I think about the fact that at the end of time, uh, as God creates a new heavens and a new earth, there will be that heavenly Zion, that new Jerusalem, where we as his people will live forever. And uh, that is where we look. So uh, as we suffer, we think about past suffering saints. We think about God's past faithfulness in our lives. We think about God's knowledge of our suffering. We know that God will right all wrongs in the end. We continue to love our enemies faithfully, and we know that God has and will rescue and save his people forever, and we allow that to shape the way that we live. So let me pray for us, and then we will sing our next song. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we thank you for the fact that you are just. We don't often thank you for your judgments, but we, we should. We, it, it is right that you judge evil. And for us, we are so incredibly thankful that you judged our evil in Jesus on the cross. You condemned sin in his flesh, Romans 8 says, so that there would be no condemnation for us. 
And Lord, we, we, while we, with Paul, we grieve over the lostness of others, but we pray for the salvation of others. Yet we know at the end of the day that for those who die in their sin, in love with their sin, who pass into eternity rejecting Jesus and loving evil, we know, Lord, that your judgment against those people we certainly deserved, but we know that it is right and it is good and it is holy that you judge evil even in eternity in hell. So, Lord, help us not be ashamed of the fact that you are just and that at the end you right all wrongs. Help that instead to free us to not seek vengeance ourselves, but instead free us to love even our enemies and to pray for them who persecute us and to try to win them to Christ. Uh, Lord, we know at the end of the day that you will get the glory, whether through salvation or through judgment, whether it's through the drowning of the Egyptians or the rescuing of the Israelites at the Red Sea, your glory is in all of it. And so Lord, help us ultimately to be able to be stabilized on that rock of truth that our God is in the heavens, he does what he pleases, and what God does is always just, it is always righteous, and it is always good. And Lord, help that to be a foundation in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a longer section than I normally do to end today. I want to read the first 16 verses of Revelation 19. This will take just a moment to read. But please follow along with me, and then I will close in prayer. I think we see some of the themes that we looked at today in in Psalm 69 sort of coming together here at the end of the Bible. So Revelation 19, and I'll just remind you that uh, I think I said this a few months ago, but the word hallelujah, while used many times in the Old Testament, is only used in one chapter in the New Testament. Four times in Revelation 19, we have the word hallelujah, the only time it appears in the New Testament. And it's interesting to see how it is used in reference to some of the topics we looked at today. So Revelation 19, as we close, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you are both, both merciful and just. That the first time you came to the earth, you came humbly in a manger. You came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through you. And you have given ample time for the world to receive your message. Thousands, 2,000 years have passed of patience and long-suffering and tenderness and compassion. You have held out your days all day long to a disobedient and rebellious people. And Lord, we thank you for your compassion that has brought so many of us to saving faith by your mercy. And yet, Lord, we know that your patience does not last forever, that a time will come after thousands of years of waiting where your patience comes to an end and your justice comes down and the Lord Jesus will descend on the white horse with a sword in his mouth, inflicting justice on those who have rejected him. Lord, help us not to be embarrassed of this part of your word. Uh, help us to say at the end of time, hallelujah to your justice and your judgments, Lord. We know that we richly deserve them ourselves, and we are grateful for your deliverance from them. But Lord, help us not to be embarrassed, either by your compassion or by your judgments. Lord, you are a God who is good, and you do all things well. So comfort us, rather, with these truths and help us to live a life of love and forgiveness, knowing that in the end, you are the one who will right all wrongs, and help us not to take that job into our own hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.